0: and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today I'm joined by Professor Dawadka. He is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at Wayne State University School of Medicine. He's the co-director of the Brain Imaging Research Division. So we're very lucky that he's with us today. His research focuses on many aspects of psychiatry and neuroscience and I'll put a link to all his work and papers in the link link to the podcast, but where he's become really well known and famous is for his work on imaging Wim Hof's brain. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And we're going to touch on many, many subjects. He's a very fascinating um, man. And the research he's doing is it it covers many, many different areas. So thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your time.
1: Well, thank you for the very kind introduction. And thank you for finding our work interesting. As I said to you, if you're an academic, to have somebody find your work interesting is kind of the biggest praise that you can ever receive. So,
0: do so. you want to tell the audience a again. little bit? Oh, you're welcome. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself, um, some of your background, how you became, like I was stunned to know you started out in computer science, um, which is a, an amazing skill set. but do you want to tell a little bit us about how you came to image Wim Hof's brain, what led you Perfect. to that point?
1: Certainly, it's been a very non-linear career path, as is the case for many people. Uh, So I started out as an undergraduate with the intent of studying computer science. But along the way, I became very interested in psychology and psychiatry, and particularly ideas that really date back to people like Alan Turing, of seeing the human brain as a form of an analog computer, if you will. And so that got me very interested in cognitive science and it motivated me to apply for a PhD program in psychology at Vanderbilt University. And there I was involved in studies that related to memory, to priming, to higher level vision, what we now call cognitive neuroscience. And this was around the time that in vivo function and MRI was beginning to take off. And so I was offered a fellowship at Carnegie Mellon University. And so that became yet another transition into neuroimaging. And after spending two or three years there, I became very interested in using neuroimaging to study clinical neuroscience. And I began to see conditions like schizophrenia as models of disconnection in, of the brain. And by that time, I'd already begun to read papers about schizophrenia as a disconnection syndrome. And so, from Carnegie Mellon University, I was I got a fellowship to do a clinic to do clinical neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh, which is kind of adjoins it. And I was at the University of Pittsburgh for about four or five years. I'm still a adjunct faculty member there. But then I was recruited to come to Wayne State University. And for many years, uh, I was primarily interested in studying schizophrenia uh, and other psychiatric conditions using different methods of neuroimaging and different methods that's to analyze urinary data. But somewhere along the way, because I've always kind of had a non-linear streak in me, I became very interested in human thermal regulation. And with a colleague here, we did some studies looking at the, um, the biological correlates of hot flashes in symptomatic menopausal women. And we were able to show somewhat elegantly that even before the onset of frank hot flashes, in deep areas in the brain, like the medullary raffae or the dorsal raphé, which are the seat of the serotonergic system, their activity begins to rise seconds before women experience a hot flash. And this became my segue into studying human thermoregulation. So can
0: I interrupt you for a second? Sure. So, so for the audience out there, um, he's talking about hot flashes. But when he talks about when you're talking about thermoregulation, you're talking about. What we fundamentally think of as uh, when we teach it to students is like the autonomic nervous system. It's that, right. like, it's how we regulate our temperature. And mostly we think that we have no control over that, don't we?
1: That's correct. And in fact, we live through our lives feeling cold or feeling too hot and just kind of not thinking we can do anything about it.
0: So when he was, oh. ta- when you were talking about um, the median and dorsal raffae, you're talking about this area in the brainstem that is well known to regulate our body temperature, aren't you? And, and you're talking yeah. about serotonin neurons, which, are, which are, they're the things that make us feel good that's or great. bad. That's
1: great. If you think of how we sort of heuristically categorize the brain, right? We think of the cortex and the neocortex. And that's, those are the kinds of things like the fold, the gray matter. As Erguir Poirot calls it, right? The folds in your brain that make you you, that make you think, that are most likely at the seat of what makes you feel like an individual or conscious. But then there are lots of these deep nuclei in the brain that are primitive structures that we kind of accept as being at the seat of the autonomous system that we have no conscious control over. And this is kind of how we think of the brain. You have the conscious or the willful part and then you have the autonomous or the subconscious part
0: and so, like i love how you got into this research that looking at temperature regulation through hot flashes i bet you didn't expect that
1: absolutely not and it's i think it's the advantage of i think non linear career trajectories if you're lucky enough that they pay off if you're unlucky then they don't but and so it allows you to do many different things that are of interest to you. It, it frees you from actually having to chase one specific thing or to study one specific thing.
0: So who would ever guess that hot flashes and Wim Hof would be would come together? So when I you, I don't
1: know if I told Wim this story, but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of Part, those are but... two journey posts
0: in this path. Absolutely. Well, you wouldn't be able to have imaged his brain without doing this research because what I what So that hot flash research um, demonstrated, so do you want to describe just a little bit about how you did that research in women that were suffering a lot from hot flashes and what you discovered? So
1: I think most of your listeners will have some idea of what menopause is and what hot flashes are. And uh, of course, fortunately I've never experienced them but people tell me this is extremely unpleasant. And it is accepted that this is some form of a endogenous thermal regulatory event that is taking place as the in core body temperature in uh, menopausal women changes. And there had been very little in vivo neuroimaging done in this particular area. And So a colleague of mine here, who has since retired, who studied menopausal women, that's all he did his entire career, primarily using electrophysiology, and different other techniques. Um, had just begun to get involved in neuroimaging. and We did what turned out to be quite an elegant and interesting study where we collected functional neuroimaging data from a cohort of symptomatic menopausal women. And we contemporaneously were also connect, conducting skin conductance data, which allowed us to identify the onset of hot flashes in these women. And the advantage was that because skin conductance measures provide you with an objective assessment of the hot flash. So hot flash means that you have uh, subcutaneous sweating, which then is detected by skin conductance measures, which shows you then that what is a subthreshold signal immediately goes threshold, which means you can then identify where the hot flash happened. And because we were contemporaneously collecting functional neuroimaging data, we were able to analyze the functional neuroimaging data gated by when the hot flash happened in each and every participant. And so what we were able to show is that these areas of the brain that you mentioned, the dorsal and the medullary Raphae, their activity began to change even before the onset of the hot flash, suggesting that there is detectable activity in these deep brain autonomous structures, even before women experience the hot flash itself. And the areas of the brain that we most uh, generally identify with our conscious sense of self, areas like the dorsal anterior cingulate, or the insula or the dorsal dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Their activity only changed several seconds after the onset of the hot flash. And we interpreted that to mean that that activity is reflecting kind of the discomfort or the interoceptive processes that these women are engaged in. So that, that's a brief background.
0: Yeah, so because you um, did that work, uh, you were one of the first, I guess, in the US, When Gary Egan, you mentioned in Australia, you, do, you got hold of these body suits um, mm-hmm. to then start looking more into what's happening in the brain when we're changing our temperature regulation. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. what, what made you do that?
1: So my, my colleague, Otto Music and I, Otto, is a professor of pediatrics and neurology here. Uh, and he had been interested in studying thermal regulation from a slightly different angle, basically looking at brown adipose tissue and the activation of brown adipose tissue. In the this area. is our fat cells, by the way. That's right, yeah. yeah. Using a method called posit- positron emission tomography. Uh, and then we essentially became joined at the hip in this endeavor where we realized that there is a real paucity of studies that have looked at uh, in vivo neuronal mechanisms that are correlates of human thermal regulatory defense. And it's unsurprising that there was a paucity of these studies because you actually need a very specific type of apparatus and you need to have a high degree of experimental control in how you apply a whole body cooling or reheating stimulus. And so all of the studies that had been done had been in the context of heat pain or cold pain, which means that you have a participant sitting and you then take a heat or a cold stimulus and you place it on, on their arm. And you can measure the functional MRI response or the electrophysiological response. But as we intuited, and as most people would agree, that is not thermal regulation per se. That is really more associated with nociceptive responses to pain. And so we realized that we need a method or a mechanism to deliver a whole body cooling or a reheating stimulus. And so Aura found this company, I think in Toronto, Canada, which makes these cold suits, which are these uh, latex suits that are infused with very small ball rubber tubing. And these suits are primarily used, I think, to cool individuals who are working in extremely hot environments or bomb disposal units or what might what you. And the advantage is that, because they have these tubings within it, you can infuse those tubings with temperature controlled water. And that's what we did. So we had reservoirs. It's kind of a rudimentary of apparatus. You have reservoirs of cold water and neutral temperature water. And you can simply change uh, the water that you're infusing through the soup periodically with a timer. And so you create what we call an oscillating stimulus. You have a cooling stimulus followed by a rewarming stimulus followed by a cooling stimulus. And because we were also collecting skin temperature from participants, we also had independent information on the effectiveness of the cooling stimulus. And so you could track when skin temperature, which we know is correlated with changes in core body temperature, we knew when skin temperature is changing. And all of this was being done while we were contemporaneously acquiring in vivo functional MRI data from participants. And so we were able then to gate the analysis. Just as we gated the analysis of the hot flash data from when women experienced a hot flash, here we were able to gate the fMRI analysis based on the gradients of skin temperature change or whether skin temperature had adapted. And what we showed was it's in fact when you have a temperature gradient, that is when skin temperature is changing, that's when the human thermal regulatory network is extremely active. And that's when it's, and as you would expect, I mean, this is something that you would absolutely expect. You now have a system that is detecting a change in the periphery. Of course, this is, uh, uh, ecologically speaking, a very dangerous change mm-hmm. when body temperature starts to drop. And you immediately see regions like the insula, like the rafae. now they start responding, uh, specifically when temperature is dropping, not when it has become stable.
0: Yes, of course. Um, so this leads us to, um, because the, we're, we're giving the audience this understanding because this is why you are the person that um, got to image Wim Hof because you were set up so well for doing this, weren't you? That's right. That's right. So we had already, we had the apparatus. We had a,
1: uh, I could put it that way, we had a program in place to study human thermal regulatory mechanisms using functional MRI and PET. And then around 2016 or so is when we had a student or a colleague tell us about Wim Hof. And I have to confess, I had not known of Wim Hof at that time.
0: Nor had Uh, many others.
1: (laughs) Evidently, yes. And it so we actually were, I also have to confess that we did not initially have that much of an interest in the method. For us, or at least for me, Wim became a specimen who fit, it sounds crude to put it this way, but he became a kind of a unique specimen who has demonstrable defense against cold. And so there clearly are some tonic changes that have happened in his brain, which we assumed to be the case. And it would have, for us, it was going to be an enormously interesting enterprise to subject him to this cold stressor that we use in novices <clears throat> and individuals and tra- try and understand how his brain responds. And so that became the original motivation that oh, yep. of had us reach out to him. He was very receptive and he flew over here from Amsterdam in early 2017, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And he
1: spent two or three days where we did experiments using functional MRI, PET imaging and so on on and I think that's the study that you're well aware of the brain
0: or body yeah. so you, you, you and um, the, I mean this was a this was a game changer in some sense I mean it's only n equals one that was his brain um, mm-hmm. and but it was published in neuroimage and I guess the biggest I think what was what would you say was the original aha or shocking moment for you as you looked at the data compared to people that are not training like he has over a long period of time?
1: So I would say, interestingly enough, the most remarkable set of data in that is not so much the neuroimaging data, it's the skin temperature data. Yes. So if, if you are subjected to a whole body cooling stimulus, it would, I think you would agree it would be unthinkable that your skin temperature would not change with the stimulus. And what we found in his case is, when he was imaged uh, a short period after he had completed his entire method of uh, breathing, of meditation, we found his skin temperature was extremely resistant to the actual stimulus. That is, it, it was essentially invariant. And this is a real measure. It's not like a neuroimaging measure. So neuroimaging signals are analyzed they are processed and so, so on. Skin temperature measures are not processed. It is the measure that comes off the probe. And so we found this to be an extremely striking finding. And that's that had nothing to do with neuroimaging per se. And I think that data is in the paper. But the other thing that was very, fun, very, very striking was his ability, for lack of a better word, ability to activate deep brain structures in the midbrain, like the periaqueductal ray, that to our knowledge had been most closely associated with the descending modulation of pain in physiological studies. And the fact that in the aftermath of his method, he was able to engage in a phasic increase in activity in this region, uh, compared to like a 20 odd number of uh, healthy controls, much younger healthy controls who didn't practice the method. And we found this finding to be extremely interesting. And so if you look at that paper, we also have the actual uh, fMRI time series data that show exactly what we are talking about, that what are the regions where we observe these effects, what those effects look like. And in the discussion, we had quite a bit of speculation of what this might mean. And it might mean, again, we have no data. And I have to confess that a lot of what I'm speaking, some of it is speculation, some of it is known. But we speculated that what, may well be happening is that in regions that are associated with endocannabinoids, um, it may be plausible that what this method does is it engages in either tonic or phase shifts in the endocannabinoid tone of regions in the deep brain, like the uh, periaqueductal brain. And it is very plausible that there may be substantive ameliorative effects on mood and anxiety. Mm -hmm. if these practitioners are able to, in fact, engage in these shifts in how regions, deep brain structures like periaqueductal gray are behaving or are activating.
0: And so, um, you know, that's really, those deep brain structures is something what people would call subconscious. You call them autonomous, meaning we're kind of teaching in textbooks the autonomic nervous system and things like that. So... And, and this work has been replicated now, I think as well, hasn't it? And you've come out with new paper as well, since That's that right. original paper mm-hmm. looking at demo regulation. So That's I think right. what you're starting to see is that we have some conscious control over some of these systems that we thought we didn't.
1: I think that we have, whether you want to call it conscious, whether you want to call it willful, or whatever semantics you want to use. I think it's unquestionable that our traditional ideas of this divide between the conscious and the autonomous, uh, those are not tenable anymore in the way in which they are advocated for. Uh, and in many ways, to me, I never found that division all that compelling because, as you and I have talked before, there are, there is a tradition of, you know, from different cultures where. People may not know exactly why something works, but they know that some things work. And many of these techniques, like what WIM has used, their antecedents lie in sort of thousands of years of informal experimentation that individuals in different cultures have done, where they have used controlled breathing or chaotic breathing combined with uh, exposure to pain or combined with meditation, what we now call hermetic stressors. Yeah. So you were
0: talking a little bit about this, about dynamic meditation. Do you want yeah. to describe that um, method?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, I didn't know of this whole dynamic meditation business till after, you know, we studied WIM.
0: Yeah.
1: And till I saw this documentary on Netflix called Wild Wild Country, which is a documentary on an Indian guru named Rajneesh. People know him as Bhagwan Rajneesh. Subsequently, he changed his name to Osho. Very controversial guy. He started out in philosophy, but then basically became embroiled in lots of different controversies. But that's an aside. But it's interesting that he pioneered this technique, which was called dynamic meditation. So the traditional meditative techniques that come from the East are very contemplative, are very calm. But it appears that he came up with this technique, which involves, uh, substantive periods of chaotic breathing. It's, it's a group activity with chaotic breathing where people are just kind of perturbing. Uh, when we breathe, there's a certain homeostasis or there's a certain balance to it, right? And of course, when we do activity that changes the balance and there are many different ways to change the balance of breathing. But this was very chaotic breathing that practitioners engaged in followed by very, very vigorous activity. And then they concluded these dynamic meditation sessions by what in yoga you call Shavasana. But it's it was really sort of a contemplation, I think, of how their internal body state had been changed by engaging in this extremely dynamic activity. And it struck me that, in fact, many elements of what Rajneesh was talking about back in the 70s, which he probably kind of put together from his own experiences, mm-hmm what was known in India or in the East at that time, have now become translated in many elements of WIMS technique, uh, including sort of this uh, rapid breathing and breath holding. So you basically perform hypocapnia, which changes the CO2 level in your system and it, change, it basically causes alco- alkalosis in your blood. It changes the pH level. Mm-hmm. And then you engage in a breath hold. And so the breath hold actually creates a second stress response with another hormetic stressor, which creates the sense of asphyxiation. It's all controlled, of course. But then you marry to that cold exposure, which is yet another hormetic stressor, which gets married to this autonomous system. And then you follow that with this contemplative meditative state where you're trying to understand how how your physiological system, which has been abruptly and very massively kicked out of homeostasis now is returning to homeostasis.
0: Yes. And we understood
1: that, we understood that, though we didn't know how, but we understood that this seems to be playing out at many different levels in the hierarchy within our brain. And so at the sort of the autonomous level and also at the conscious level. And we intuited even again, even though we didn't know exactly how, that it's this marriage of the autonomous and the conscious, which is somehow key. Uh, And it's somehow that this marriage is creating the kind of positive effects that people just report all the time. Like Rajneeshis always seem to be euphoric uh, and people who practice the Wim Hof method claim that it enormously stabilizes mood, other apart from having other therapeutic effects relating to general inflammation and so on. So even though we we don't know of the exactly, exactly how all of this is playing out, we have certain intuitions of how it is playing. out.
0: Yes. That
1: was was a long answer.
0: No, but yeah. So I think this brings us to the point around, I mean, so many people suffering, um, in some sense, unnecessarily related to our evolutionary brain structures. Mm -hmm. And so what you're describing there, and this is just like us having a conversation, and as you said, we're still working it all out, but what what that says to me is that these very old systems that are very important for regulating our temperature and keeping us safe from all sorts of predatory Mm -hmm. threats and cold exposure being one of them, um, uh, they become very automatic meaning that they're, they're old and so that so to shift them takes a lot of effort is what you're kind of saying in some sense exactly and we don't
1: we tend to live our lives trying to be comfortable <laughs> and that's we also talk about that in a paper that we've submitted for 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 review right now where we talk about sort of the way in which human thermal regulation is kind of a unique uh, um, emergence of the peculiar complexity of the human brain. And even though it shares elements that, primarily autonomous elements that it shares with other animal models of thermal regulation, the way in which humans engage in long-term thermal regulation is through long-term prediction and through changing the environment. And so humans are, to my knowledge, the only species that do not adapt to the environment. They yeah. adapt the environment to them.
0: That's so true. And Except for some, like the Eskimos and
1: the Sherpas. Very, very few, exactly. But almost everybody else lives in an environment that has been adapted for them. And um, you may or may not know of Scott Card, who's an author, who's actually written kind of an interesting book on, on the cold. I think it's called talked to him at length, it's, I think the name of the book is What Doesn't, If It Doesn't Kill You or something like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and he makes this point very in a very interesting way uh, that we essentially spend our lives trying to be comfortable. And in doing so, and it's a speculative argument, but in doing so, we have lost sort of the, the evolutionary edge that led to the expansion of the species and that led to the enormous degree of complexity that the human brain has,
0: yeah, and I, I mean, I, and this is where we get to why we've got increase, like a pandemic can lead to an increase in mental health crises related to Absolutely. isolation and everything, uh, because we've and and all sorts of other factors related to parenting and food and all sorts of things that have led to what people would describe as less resilience, like which which is about adaptation, isn't it, to the environments that we're facing.
1: Correct, And you have the paradox now where people live longer and so some aspects of their system are more resilient to disease because of the advances in some elements of medicine. But psychologically, we are quite plausibly less resilient than previous generations were. Like if you think of people who are a half a generation ahead of us, who survived wars, who survived extreme, extreme uh, cases, and we live in a time now where we, fortunately, we are sort of free of many of these stressors and we have adapted quite psychologically adapted to these. And I think it's made us less resilient. Of course, what we are saying is speculation, but I think there's quite a bit of basis for the speculation.
0: Yeah. So uh, so just to summarize where we got to is that um, exposing ourselves to a cold shower in the morning, um, and I do that, I never used to, used to hate the cold. Um, but as I did Wim Hof method just to, to test it out for myself and, and I was totally surprised to learn how my body adapted down to being able to be with ice and jumping cold lakes like I seriously was a person that had the hottest shower would never go into anything that was cold I really hated the cold and I could adapt myself uh, over through the practicing techniques that I learned I was really surprised to learn just how much you can adapt. I I honestly was as a neuroscientist, and then I really start to think about all the things I'd been taught about these systems. It really Mm -hmm. made me kind of almost shocked in a way.
1: So I would say that what what one gets taught in med school or in, in neuroscience isn't wrong, but it's incomplete and it is taught as being applicable to a wide variety of systems. And so a lot of basic physiology comes from animal models, right? And if you're thinking of mechanisms like thermal regulation, you have to assume that those are very much yoked to the evolutionary ecology that these species kind of evolved in and to the complexity of their neural systems. And so I've always thought that what gets taught in textbooks is, is incomplete and I think we have to understand that it is not untrue, but it isn't necessarily generalizable to many different contexts. And so if, you're, if you study physiology in a rat model, well, a rat really doesn't have much of a neocortex that to our knowledge allows it to actually do anything interesting with its physiology. But if you're studying physiology in humans, well, humans have this enormous neocortex which endows us with a behavioral repertoire, which is unrivaled. I mean, if you think of the complexity of language, I mean, I don't have to get into this.
0: Yeah. So, so, the, 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 p- so the question is here, this is, so this is great. Um, this is a great conversation because this is so true, right? And the individualness of, the, of human brains is quite substantial too. Absolutely. It, and, and so then what do we do then to keep upgrading our knowledge? And that's as the facts change through and and you would have to agree that when you entered neuroscience and when I did, it was not in the stage that we're having these conversations at all. The technology wasn't there. So but it is now and the, the, the breakthroughs, honestly, I can't keep up to them uh, and I'm all over it trying to keep up to them and it's it's really substantially exponential and it's growing by the day. So what do we do, um, in your opinion, you're someone that's teaching students in med school and other places, what do we do to keep the, tech, the information upgraded because the textbooks are so outdated now it's outrageous but it's still being taught in some sense because... This is, uh- it's so hard. I it,
1: you are more of a public educator than I am. So I should turn this question back to you because you are trying to provide informative information. Not all information is informative. A lot of information is just factual. But I think you are trying to provide insightful inter, in, information to large numbers of people, much larger numbers than I reach. Uh, But it's a very difficult question. Uh, One of the things that I tell students, admittedly, I do this in small groups of students, is I tell them to get involved in research. And I specifically say to them that the reason it's useful and insightful to get involved in research is because it'll tell you how limited your textbooks are in teaching you about the human brain. And it's when you get involved in a research project of your own, that you lead a research project of your own, that you will come to appreciate the complexity of the system and you will come to understand sort of what a cartoonized version of this ends up being taught in sort of these traditional didactic. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess for me, um, as someone that went in to understand the brain, Uh, based because of what I didn't like about how my sister was treated and then to understanding where we are today and then seeing that we're still pretty much doing similar slightly better things from 35 years ago it's very frustrating for people out there suffering right now to not be able to and, and and also professionals struggling to help people when we have so much updated information that could make such a huge difference and then And then we have such dichotomous understanding where like someone like the Wim Hof method that's now been scientifically shown, hundreds of thousands of people benefiting from this method, and that's still considered not something that a traditional practice could use. It's quite frustrating, isn't it?
1: I mean, I agree with you. What can I say? It's things, some aspects of science move slowly. I'll give you an example. So we are currently on the throes of conducting a controlled trial with volunteers using a combination of before and after imaging to look yeah. at the impact of uh, this method on the brains of novice volunteers. Now, we know somebody who are here who's a, who's a counselor in the school system who is, in, who is very, very taken by this and who wants to initiate this as a possible method to help adolescents. As you know, the pandemic has yeah. taken an enormous toll. Oh, world. yes, very it much so. Need for lifestyle intervention. Yeah,
0: so. oh, they've been the most impacted in Australia. Exactly. The, the data shows 19 to 25-year-olds.
1: Yeah, and I said to him that, to be honest with you, you are better off doing an ad hoc trial with adolescents rather than relying on us to do this scientifically because if we have to do this in the context of a research study, there are lots of understandable that we have to jump through to get approval for it and so on. But if you're not interested in doing it as a research study, you're much better off just doing it as an informal study or an informal application to, to students and then just informally collecting information about how they feel and if it makes them feel better. And so what do you care about, you know, whether there's a scientific application or not? And I said to him that this might actually be a better avenue for you to do. So I think that to your point, I would say that science moves a little bit slowly, and there are some pros to that, and there are some cons to that. Um, like, like you yourself said, you know, it's it's only about seven or eight years ago that these methods began to be taken seriously, and it took several studies that were conducted by different groups around the world on different aspects, and now you kind of have a literature where you you know people can take you seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have believed it either um, until I did it myself as well. Yes, I mean, I don't take anything at face value without actually doing it. That's for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So, what's your purpose now? What's like? uh, when I know that you came. You like it's. You're very. You have a very unusual and fantastic um, career because that computer science background is very valuable for what you're doing now in terms of analytics and understanding the good parts and the bad parts of what you're doing. Um, You mentioned that you became a neuroscientist um, because you were sitting in college and you came across a couple of books. And can we just talk about that a bit? Because often people don't see that they see themselves as a computer scientist, but they don't see that they could potentially go and do other things too. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, that is, this is a true story. I was an undergraduate uh, and I think it was my second or my third year that I was just, around the library and you know these the newly arrived books would be kept in like a cart before they were shelved and um, I'm dating myself but this was actually I think the computerized databases were just coming about you would still have to look at those card databases you know what I'm talking about So, so this book had not even been shelved and I just picked it up and it was At some point, somebody had commissioned Jean-Paul Sartre, of all people, to write a screenplay that was to have become a movie on Sigmund Freud's life. And I picked picked this up, and it was absolutely fascinating. At that time, I I don't believe I had had anything more than an introductory psychology course, if even. I became really fascinated by sort of Freudian psychoanalysis, Freudian theory, and so on. And about the same time, there was a book that Howard Gardner put up called The Mind's New Science, which was a synthesis of the ideas that existed at that point on cognitive science and the integrative nature of cognitive science. A a lot of these ideas had already existed. Like if you look at the work of some of my heroes, like Alan Turing and John von Neumann, These are people who had already thought of the human brain as a computer or as an analog computer, but it took about 30, 40 years for these ideas to become synthesized into what we then and still call cognitive science. And so it was sort of one of this book on, which was not even a book, it was a screenplay, which never got made into a movie of Freud's life. And this book on the mind's new science that kind of got me thinking beyond sort of the narrow Uh, realm of computer science and ever since then i've just kind of stayed very very non-linear in how i have approached my career and so this is what i tell students is you can learn from many many different sources and many different people because the human brain is always learning it doesn't have to be put in in situations where it's told to learn it's always learning
0: and i think to be a good scientist having that approach helps because it allows you to keep your mind open Because, like, I have to say that I got very closed in my mindset Um, for about 20 years. I was a pharmacist, a medically trained neuroscientist, so I was developing drugs for a long time Mm -hmm. by trying to understand the networks in the brain and applying those drugs and then advancing them, thinking that that was all I had to do um, and I just wasn't good at it. Mm -hmm. And then it took a lot to shift my mind, actually, um, away from just thinking that was the only way I had to go. Um, I came quite narrow. I got a lot of funding from the NIH. Um, I got, you know, I got really rewarded for doing that. So shifting mm-hmm. was quite difficult. Um, so for me to talk about Wim Hof, if I was, I would never have had this conversation with you in 2009 or even up to 2012. To be honest, I honestly mm-hmm. wouldn't. I wouldn't have even read your papers. Um, so you know, this idea of keeping, like scientists, even them, we get so fixed because that's how we're awarded. And so being multidisciplinary or being able to shift around is actually very helpful the younger you do it. So you can keep your mind open to new ideas. And this leads us to why it's so hard to upgrade textbooks and everything too, isn't it? Or let exactly. alone in the professions that are actually applying this knowledge. It's, it goes across every discipline, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it's a strange paradox. So when you train in science, what is one of the most valuable aspects of training that you get? You get training in scientific rigor, but actually that frequently turns into intellectual rigor mortis where you then I
0: that's exactly what I had
1: <laughs> exactly so because you get trained in scientific rigor, somehow you instinctively generalize that to how you have to conceptualize complex phenomenon. And I think you tend to be very constrictive and restrictive in how you look at things. And of course, you know, the history of Western science is very much about productionism. And
0: yes, and yes, absolutely. Phenomenon. And also a competition of ideas.
1: Exactly, exactly. And
0: so this is what people in the public may not realize. And I got made aware of this really clearly with peanut allergies in America, uh, where yeah. like 51% of people or the scientific opinion came down on allergy, the peanut allergy side. So they got rid of peanuts from mm-hmm. everywhere. But there were also about 49% saying that, that you need to be exposed to to that so you can train your immune system for it. And there were some children that end up with such severe peanut allergies, they couldn't eat anything. So they had to be put in hospital and reintroduced to all sorts of different foods. I see. So, you know, I'm just saying that in science, there's always opinions across the whole spectrum just because this ends up being a way. It's not always what everyone has shown, for example.
1: But ask yourself, so, you know, for the longest time, these methods like meditation, mindfulness, were, were thought of as kind of new agey and um, kind of off the chart. But it kind of doesn't make sense because almost everything that we do on a daily basis is done whether it will really or not to modify our neurobiology. We do this on a regular basis. And so I, yeah. I always found it kind of strange that people would think of mindfulness as crazy. What would be crazy is if you promoted mindfulness as a cure-all for everything. So what, <laughs> Which is is <laughs> what is
0: happening now. Which happening,
1: It is crazy. But what is not crazy is trying to understand what does mindfulness do? Or what are some of the neuronal correlates that are changed by mindfulness? That's the yeah. application of scientific rigor.
0: Yes, but then that, to that's critical. Mind-
1: Exactly, to simply close your mind off and say, oh, this is just BS, it's just kind of people trying to make a bug, which it may be, but that's not the point. Like, you yeah. still have to ask yourself. If so many people practice it and they, they self-report enormously valuable changes, you can't all, always say that that's down to a placebo, that there yeah. has to be something that's happening.
0: And, and I also studying it means you can also study the side effects. Because they're exactly. not they're not reported at all in this exactly. literature, and I came across that too recently and have on my podcast uh, Nicholas Van Dum, who's published on Mind the Hype, talking about the method. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, I know. I know. Yeah. Yes, um, he worked with Richard Davidson. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah, so these things are important for lots of reasons, for the benefits, <laughs> and also so you can report on things that might go wrong too, so that yeah. we don't end up giving them to children as if they're little adults. Exactly. <laughs> for example, yeah. um, when yeah. playing or breathing might be just as good.
1: <laughs> but see, another thing, I mean, you probably agree with this, serena is that the way in which science used to be practiced was, it was sort of very, very slow. I mean, you would have scientific studies. They would be published in, in journals. It would take a large amount of physical time for those journals to, get disseminated, and then it would take sort of months and months and so on. Now, of course, the process is now in hyperdrive. Everything happens very, very quickly. Now, the cons of that is that you have lots of these conmen who can actually disseminate bad information very quickly. But the pros of it is that you can actually build a meaningful scientific community much more quickly now.
0: That's true. Uh, Like uh, you and I having this Zoom call, it wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. You'd normally meet at conferences and stuff, and that's very slow.
1: Exactly. But now if you have sort of the right group of right-thinking people who embrace rigor in trying to study something, you can bring them together very quickly and you can have very meaningful discussions and you can disseminate meaningful information in a very, very democratized way whether everybody will reach for that or people would still be seduced by the con men or not that's a different question. Yeah. The point is that this is one of the pros of kind of the age of technology that we live.
0: Absolutely. So as someone that's on the cutting edge of all this technology in terms of imaging and other techniques that you're trying to marry with it and the mathematics Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is coming that we're not, we, we may not be aware of in terms of technology um, that may not be quite there yet in terms of what you're doing? But can you see something that's going to revolutionize our understanding of the brain? I don't think
1: that there is one thing, but I think that the, the maturation of network neuroscience.
0: Yes, the connectome. Is, is that the connectome work? Married with the genomics oh, anything.
1: So. That's right, yeah. But the maturation of network neuroscience, which really is a specific uh, instantiation of how complexity theory has blossomed. So, you know, in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and people like yeah. Viv Van Lansky, were talking about complexity and having to study the system as a whole rather than reducing it to its elements. I think that what we are seeing in network neuroscience now is kind of that blossoming of complexity theory applied to the brain. I think that this is an area which will begin to provide meaningful insights about how the brain works. That is, I I would say that uh, the philosophical position from which we are now starting to understand the brain, I think we are now well placed to understand the brain in meaningful ways. And, and, to, and quote, you know, to quote Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, I think he had a quote which said something to the effect that the answers you get will depend upon the questions that you ask. And I think that now with kind of the what's happened over the last 20, 25, 30 years, I think more and more people are asking the right questions about the brain.
0: And would you and, say, uh, I get asked this a lot about um, the physical versus the unknown, unconscious, mm-hmm. what's consciousness question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was a lovely paper just published in Nature talking about how defining the problem instead of just talking in an esoteric way about what is consciousness. Oh, yes. um, and that's exactly what you just mentioned then is how exactly. you frame the question that you're actually asking instead of exactly. invoking something that's completely unknown.
1: Exactly. And I think it's... In our world, framing the question is the biggest challenge because see, neuroimaging has in many ways democratized how people study the brain. It's You can actually do a neuroimaging study without really knowing much about neuroimaging and without really knowing much about the brain, to be honest with you. Now, that actually doesn't serve us well because it's that is not an investigation that emerges from a particularly meaningful place, a meaningful philosophical place. And I've always been very particular about telling students that you need to have a philosophical stance about how you're going to approach the problem, because you can approach the problem from many different directions. But this is where insight and deep thinking really becomes very, very important. And I think now is kind of, I feel a little bit reassured that you know, there are many more interesting things that will emerge in the next 5 to 10 years, primarily from the perspective of network neuroscience.
0: Yes, and also the physical brain. I mean, people, exactly. people are really against this idea that it comes from a physical brain, consciousness.
1: That's right. But I think that, like, the, what's the problem with the brain? I mean, if you really think of what is the... What is our fundamental scientific slash philosophical problem in neuroscience? And here I cite uh, a quote from somebody, which goes something to the effect that if human, if the human brain was so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we could not. And so it's it's kind of this uh, recursive statement, exactly that you we have to use. A extremely complicated system to try and understand itself. And so there's this recursive nature to some of what we do, this nested nature to some of what we do, which makes it even more difficult. That is, the system has to study itself.
0: Yes, and I I think we're also a bit um, averse to seeing just how far back in history we go, like all the way back to when the universe formed. You know like exactly. we are we are built off simple systems that uh, Darwinian selection combined with Lamarckian genetics has put together and we've survived a long time <laughs> to get to exactly. where we are today. Exactly. So um yeah. so is so what is your purpose now as you what what's your big question that you'd like to answer be I don't think I have
1: a single purpose but we have many purposes in our work. So among other things is, so the network neuroscience that I talked about, that has not really been a comprehensive application to human thermal regulation per se. And so over the last couple of uh, years, we've published papers where we have looked at how these hierarchical networks in the human thermal regulatory hierarchy might transact information. And to try and understand that, we have used a variety of different techniques to analyze functional MRI data. We are applying these general principles of network neuroscience and the graph theory to understand, for example, how the sch- the brain in schizophrenia patients reorganizes itself, if you, if you will, to implement learning. So people, when people talk about patients with schizophrenia, they talk about, or their scientists are conditioned to talk about patients don't do this particularly well. Well, patients don't do many things particularly well, but they do lots of things. And the question is, when they do lots of things, what is it in the brain that is allowing them to do lots of these different things, albeit in ways that are compromised? And so to try and understand that, we just submitted a paper that a student of ours led where we use graph theoretic methods to try and understand kind of how different nodes in the brain network in schizophrenia patients adopt uh, a different level of centrality in transacting information compared to uh, different nodes in controlled participants.
0: Yes. So
1: that's another application of network neuroscience. We're trying to understand group structure in brain networks in schizophrenia patients and patients with obsessive compulsive disorder to ask how kind of these pairs of network nodes cumulatively build a network and whether the way in which they build this network in as a group in patients is different than in controls. So there are lots of these different projects that we are involved in. So it's, I would say it's not one purpose, but there are many
0: purposes. Highly speculative, but have you ever thought about looking at their thermoregulatory network and whether the Wim Hof method could improve some of the way that they access information and learning?
1: We actually have thought of a specific study, not specifically to do with the Wim Hof method, but to deal with this asymmetry between the autonomous and the conscious systems in the brain. Specifically, we have thought of a study to try and understand what whole body cooling does to networks that are involved in learning and memory and emotion and cognition. Because we know that there is this enormous asymmetry that you see. So when your homeostasis is perturbed, we informally know that it makes us, it makes it more difficult for us to concentrate. It makes it more difficult for us to engage in kind of uh, normal cognitive behavior. But on the flip side, you, we can't warm ourselves on a cold day by just imagining a warm beach or sort of a hot sh- imagining taking a hot shower. And so we actually have thought of designing these studies where we subject participants to controlled cold stress,
0: Mm -hmm. while
1: we're contemporaneously asking them to engage in cognitive tasks, Mm -hmm. to look at the impact of cold stress on the reorganization of these conscious networks that are involved in learning in memory, to demonstrate, in fact, that there is this this kind of this ascending interference, if you will, from uh, these deep networks, autonomous networks, uh, on cognitive networks and of course the question of whether you can use methods like the Wilhelmhoff method to ameliorate this interference that's another question yeah or just yeah. cold
0: exposure even
1: exactly, exactly. yeah because
0: I know many people report having a cold shower it completely stops their bad mood, for example, they just jump in the cold shower. If they're having a bad time, they, they, they're shocked to learn that that might help, or they feel more alert after having a cold shower before they're starting work. Yes. And you know, there's lots of evidence for this. So that would be so fascinating to see how we can improve mental health of people suffering.
1: The possibilities are endless. The paradox is, you know, your mind is, exists in this physical world and it can come up with these ideas. But these ideas have to be implemented in the same physical world. And that implementation takes orders of magnitude more time and resources than it takes to think up something.
0: Absolutely. So, So thank you. That's
1: what we struggle with.
0: Thank you so much for uh, that you did what the research you're doing. I think it's it's, been very valuable for the field. And I do hope that we can keep extending it so that we can now make it more applicable and implementable across normal systems of people that need to access um, this and get told about it because it's it's kind of fringe a little bit still and people still see it that way in some sense but it feels like it's got so much scientific support and evidence now it'd be nice to see it integrated into um, practice
1: yeah we hope this is the first stage in sort of a long series of studies that we and others do that illuminate you know sort of how these different methods what their scientific biological basis is, because I think once you illuminate some element of the biology, it makes something seem much more credible and make it, it, it makes it much more real.
0: See, without neuroimaging, we wouldn't be here.
1: That's correct. I think that that remains one of the, it's a flawed, but nevertheless, one of the most valuable techniques that you have to make well, the kind of advances that you need to see in biology.
0: Well, you know, as I say to people, when you go to the gym and you're working out and you see your muscles getting stronger because you can see them, you're looking in the mirror, unlike the brain, you can't see it. And that's Absolutely. been one of our greatest hindrances in terms Absolutely. of, ex, ex, you know, the accelerating.
1: Perfect example. I agree.
0: Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing your next paper and maybe you can come back on the podcast. Um, Thank you. It's, a, great it's been my pleasure.
1: And- I'm glad that you found our work interesting and I hope your uh, listeners and viewers also uh, feel the same way.
0: Thank you.